Well, as I just alluded in my prayer, this is the last uh, message in James, and uh, this is a big one. It's going to be kind of a bit of rapid fire today because as we often see in epistles in the New Testament especially, there's kind of like these, these rapid fire thoughts of all these things we need to consider in, in the parting words here. And this probably could have been, should have been two, two messages uh, about time constraints. We're, gonna, we're making this one big one. So it's going to be drinking out of a fire hose today. Uh, so take notes and uh, know that if you ever need to re-watch uh, anything, this is always available uh, after this, the service as well. But we're going to talk about patient hope, patience and hope, two words that we often misunderstand. And uh, we think of patience as this idea of just kind of waiting uh, statically and just waiting for things to kind of blow over or just trying not to be too annoyed in the moment. But patience really means endurance. And it's the ability to keep going in whatever you're doing. So it's this active part of our faith that no matter what we're in, God gives us the grace and the strength to keep going. So that's patience. And hope, on the other side, is this look to the future with confidence, this trust in God. And we often think of hope as this wishy-washy optimism, uh, but hope is this, this confidence in the future that God has before us. When I was thinking about an example of how this plays out, I was reminded of a story of a man watching a Little League game. And he's watching from a distance in, in, in typical Little League fashion, you know, it's the top of the first inning, and the field, the team on the field was just riddled with errors. Balls would go through the legs of the shortstop, the outfielders would drop the easy pop flies, and when they caught the ball, they would overthrow the first baseman by 40 feet. And so he'd see this team up to bat run around the bases over and over again, up and down the order. And finally, the top half of the inning ended. And so the man went over to the dugout, and he asked one of the players there, what is the score? And the little boy said, 18 to 0. And he said, well, you must be pretty discouraged by now. And he grinned and said, why would I be discouraged? We haven't even been up to bat yet. <laughs> but that's how we should be looking at life as believers, is understanding that no matter where we are in the moment, it's not the end of the story. And God is coming up to bat. God is coming up in the bottom of the inning. And God doesn't lose. We are never down and out. And the story is never over. We can keep going with patience, and look to the future with confidence and hope of what God is going to do. And that backdrop is where we, we really pick up in the text today. As we've been going through the book of James, you understand that the readers that he's writing to were going through a lot of difficult times. And he's really promoting the hope in God through all things. That God holds all things in his hands. And so we're going to read just the first part of this today, uh, uh, verses 7 through 12 as we start. So if you open up your Bibles now to James 5, we'll just read together verses 7 through 12. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. 
Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophet who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. So as we look at those first few verses, we see really three examples of patience and three principles of patience. And we're going to look at the examples first. These are great illustrations of patience at work. And it really affects our faith and how we view the things of life. And the first example we see is of a farmer. Now, if you know any farmers or if you've been a farmer, you know that farmers by nature are hard workers. They have to be. They work sun up to sundown and often before and after, and they stay diligent in the work that they have before them. So this first example of patience is the farmer who remains diligent in what they can control while patiently trusting in God for what they cannot control. And verse 7 talks about the farmer who waits for the, the, the land to yield its crop while patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. So the farmer understands what they can do. They can prepare the soil. They can plant the seed. They can weed. They can uh, yield off the, the pests. But what they can't do is make it rain. That's something they trust in God to do in his timing. And the way farming worked in this area, it was a very arid and dry region. And rain came primarily at two times in the year, the autumn and the spring. And it's kind of opposite there. So the autumn uh, rains would come to soften the ground and allow them to plant the seed. The spring rains would come to kind of mature the crops and bring them ready for harvest. And in this, they didn't know when specifically it would happen, but they knew that it would happen eventually. It's this idea that God's timing is perfect, no matter how impatient we may be. And so this means, first, that waiting patiently through, through trials does not mean waiting uh, in an inactive state. You don't sit on your hands as you wait for God to do what we can do. We keep doing what we can do while we wait for God to do what only he can do. This is what we see that in this meantime, in this waiting, Jesus is coming back soon to finish all he started. But in the meantime, he has things for us to do. And we must not give up. In the book of Galatians, it says it in a similar way. It reads in Galatians 6, 9, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. The first example of patience is to remain diligent and keep moving forward and what you can control while trusting in God for what you cannot control. Now, the next example we read in verse 10 is about the prophets. And this example shows us that they didn't compromise what God had called them to do, 
in the midst of opposition and persecution. This is an important message for today. Because if you haven't noticed, it's becoming increasingly less popular to be a Christian and to accept his truth and to speak his truth. You've probably heard the phrase, don't kill the messenger. Well, that's exactly what happened to many of the prophets in the Old Testament. They were appointed as God's messengers to speak his truth in his words to the people, and often they were largely rejected. They were hated. They were persecuted, and many times they were killed. And to be a prophet was no easy task. And that's why we read in in verse 10, taken as as an example of patience in the face of suffering, the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. They kept going despite what came their way. Patience means going when the going gets tough. Now we count it blessed those who have persevered. And this really shows us that the church, our faith is built on the backs of those people who didn't compromise in the truth. And we have that temptation as well when a message isn't popular that maybe we want to soften it a little bit or or change it so it's easier for people to accept. But we are entrusted with the gospel of Christ. And we need people bold enough to speak without compromise. That is a charge that goes out to every single one of us. And when people do that, we can count it blessed as those who persevere in that. Don't compromise in the midst of trials. That's the example from the prophets. The last example we get of patience is the man of Job. We'll talk in a moment all he went through in his life, but he did not give up trusting and seeking the Lord during extreme hardship. Now, there's no shortage of pain in this world. There's no shortage of pain in this room, and I I know many of your stories and things you've gone through. There's probably much more that I don't know, and I can say with confidence that many of you have had a harder life than me. I feel like my life is pretty easy sometimes when I walk through some of these things with you all, but I can also say with confidence that nobody in this room went through the extent of suffering and pain that Job went through. It's incredible as you read through the book of Job. There's 42 chapters, and every chapter it just seems to kind of get worse. And you think it couldn't be any worse than this, and then it gets worse. And he lost everything. Everything he owned, everything he loved. And he constantly had this pressure, both internally and externally, to turn away from God. And don't get me wrong, there's times throughout the book of Job where he's kind of like, Okay, God, what's going on here? This doesn't really make a lot of sense, but he had the resolve to say things like, the Lord gives and the Lord takes. But through it all, blessed be the name of the Lord. What we understand through Job's example is that there was great purpose through all of these trials and hardships that he faced. That in the very last part of this book in chapter 42, it draws to this conclusion of which Job now sees God more fully after all of these trials in his life, and he comes to a deeper place of repentance before him. 
And then Job was restored in everything. That's where we understand that this story ended in, in God's compassion and mercy. And Job only saw that because of his patience and his endurance through all of the trials to see the end. God fully restored him. And it's this reminder for all of us that whatever you're walking through right now, you're not at the end of this story. But you have to keep walking in order to see the end of the story. And we have this hope that at the end is God's compassion and mercy. Nothing is without purpose. But you won't see the purpose unless you keep going. Be patient and hope in God's purposes. So we go from these examples into really three principles for patience and trials. And principles or commandments, it all kind of means the same thing here, but the reality is that these kind of play out in different ways in, in the different situations of your life, but we understand that patience does not come easy for us. And we've heard the expression, don't pray for patience, because you may not like what you get. Patience is something we have to learn, patience and endurance. It's a discipline. And so we need principles to guide us in that. We also understand that patience is a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that God gives us, and it's His work in us that brings us to a place of endurance. And so we see some difficult challenges ahead in these next three principles. But really, in reality, most of James is pretty challenging. Uh, about half of the verses in the book of James contain a command of some kind. And so we see three of them here in the text we just read. And the first is, is kind of in verse 7. It's almost somewhat hidden in there. You have to understand what we just read to understand this. But the principle here is that we are not to seek revenge for injustice in our lives, but rather we're to wait for the Lord's perfect judgment. So verse 7 reads, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. So this is a follow-up to the six verses before, in which James is talking about this injustice of these rich oppressors who are taking advantage of the Christian believers. And they're making their life very difficult to the point that they're almost left to the point of death. But the commandment here is don't take revenge on them. Don't take justice into your own hands. We should always love what is right and repel what is evil, but in the end we understand that true justice, true and perfect justice comes only from the hands of God. And Jesus is coming. And Jesus will judge. We get this wrong idea of justice sometimes that we are to be the judges in culture. And we should always look for what is good and what is orderly, but the commandment we see consistently through Scripture is spelled out pretty clearly in Romans 12, 19. Which it reads, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. So the point I'm getting at here is we often confuse justice and revenge. And in the human mind, in the human flesh, we're always going to kind of mix the two. There will always be at least a hint of revenge in our justice. But the example of Jesus is that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you, which is incredibly hard. But we understand that our battle is not against people. Our battle as a church is for people. 
and we're going to talk about that at the end of the sermon today, is that there's going to be unfairness in life and in injustice, but we are not to seek revenge for that, but trust in the perfect justice of God when he comes. Now, the next part is kind of what we left off with, with the farmer. The principle is that we're not to give up as we wait on God's timing. And too many have abandoned ship when God is really calling them to ride out the storm. God has a purpose for every bit of pain and hardship in your life, and we often fail to see it because we give up too quickly. And this is a perfect bookend in the book of James, as he starts with this idea of considering it pure joy when you face trials and sufferings of many kinds. We often think that we are incapable to make it through the things in life, which in many ways is true. God gives us the strength to make it through. But God also gives us the joy to make it through. And he gives us the patience to make it through. That perseverance brings us to a place of maturity and contentment. And that's why we understand trials aren't easy, but they have purpose. And if you think you can't keep going, just keep going. Don't give up. Be patient. Stand firm and stay the course. Now, the third principle we see here is not to grumble and complain, especially against other believers. Our job is to encourage one another when times are tough, not blame one another. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. Now, by nature, I think people like to complain, but we especially like to complain against other people and blame them. And we get this idea, it's like, boy, my life would be so easy if I weren't always surrounded by idiots, right? And it's just everything is always everyone else's fault. And I think when you complain, you get this idea that you're vaulted up to this perfect place of decision-making, no faults, and everyone else around you is who's bringing you down. And I think this is by Satan's design. You know, we already talked about how we uh, have trials and hardships for a purpose that God wants to bring you through those things to teach you and bring to a place of maturity. You know, God uses what is intended for evil for good. And I think Satan uses what is intended for good for evil, for the maximum amount of evil. And so I think he likes to capitalize on pain and hardships by turning Christians against one another. And it makes them rejoice in that, that Christians now fight one another. But we are to encourage one another through all things. And that's, I love that verse from Hebrews, that we encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, that we are not hardened by sin's deceit. And really what it's saying is that for as long as we still have a day to live in, and that means that Jesus hasn't returned, we're to keep encouraging one another until he does. Don't turn against one another through grumbling or complaints, but encourage one another through your trials. Now we're going to move on to the next part of the text. I know there's, there's one verse we kind of left out, which is verse 12, which seems kind of out of left field, which it says, don't take an oath and you know, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And and give you just a, a quick idea what that means. During this time, there is this kind of accepted practice among the Jews that you could basically tell a lie 
and it'd be accepted as long as that lie didn't use the Lord's name in your oath. So it's, it's basically you can tell an empty promise to get out of a situation or to kind of take control of a situation, and it was kind of just accepted among everyone. And this echoes the words of Jesus, is that you need to really, if you make a promise, you need to mean it. And don't try to manipulate a situation through the manipulation of words. That just means trusting in God for all things. But through this all, we understand that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back soon. And that's what gives us patience through anything we meet, but it also gives us hope. We know that we don't just sit back and do nothing. We have things to do in the meantime. And one of the greatest things we can do as Christians is pray. And that's what we're going to see in the, the concluding words of this book, is really five instances or five occasions in your life that you should be hopeful and prayer. So let's finish off the, the book here today, starting at verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So we saw in all those verses really five occasions for hopeful prayer. And we think of hopeful prayer as this idea that when you're praying for things, you put it in the hands of God, that he is our only hope in these situations, that it is in his sovereign hands, and we can trust him in that. And the first occasion, well, it's kind of a cop-out. It's every occasion, right? Every life situation, no matter how good or bad, no matter what trouble you're in, or no matter how happy you are that you're praying, if any of you is in trouble, pray. If you're happy, pray. Sing songs of praise. You know, we, we get into this habit at times of only coming to God in prayer when we want something. And we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to bring all of our needs and our requests before God. But, but the true use of prayer is so much bigger than that in our lives, that we're to bring all things to prayer. Ask God, the giver of all good things, and recognize God, the giver of all good things. And so we see this uh, spelled out in First Thess Thessalonians 5, really kind of three combo of, of uh, commandments that talks about this being our will in God. We're to rejoice always, pray in every situation, and give thanks in every circumstance, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In the middle of that is to pray continuously or pray in every situation. So the point here is that every part of your life should be covered in hopeful prayer because you recognize the sovereignty and the goodness of God over all things. Occasion number two, as we read in verses 14 and 15, is that we're to pray when we are in sick and in need of the Lord's healing. We're to pray when we are physically in need, whatever that might be. And for whatever reason, the, the idea of healing can be really divisive and polarizing in the church. 
And I, I think it's because we often take extremes on something like, like healing, where on one side is you get the idea that, that God never heals. That maybe he did for a time, but he doesn't anymore. And on the other side, you get the idea that God always heals. If you have enough faith. And I think when you gravitate towards one of those extremes, it can be divisive. I don't think either of those extremes are true. I think God can and does heal, but God doesn't always heal. And this is where it gets really confusing when you go through this, and where at times it can feel frustrating when you pray. We read the words, A prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And when you read that, it's natural to think that if you pray for something and just believe hard enough, God will do it. And that's not at all what that means. Because there's a difference between faith in faith and faith in God. This is really important to understand, and this is going to alleviate a lot of frustration in your prayer life. Okay, There's a difference between faith in faith and faith in God. Now, faith in faith is saying that if I can just put my mind to it and think positive thoughts and really, really want something to happen, then if I keep praying for it, God will do it. That's not faith in God. That's really faith in yourself. It's this idea that you have some sort of power inside of you in which you can control the situations around you. That's not faith. Faith in God is the idea, it's the belief that God can do anything. There is absolutely nothing outside of the control of God. So faith is the belief that God can do anything combined with the trust if God doesn't. Faith is the belief that God can do anything combined with the trust if he doesn't. That's the prayer offered in faith. And we see some things throughout uh, this, this little section here. We talk about the elders and anointing with oil. And again, the elders are, are the ones who are to oversee the people of the church. They are the shepherds of the flock. They are ultimately responsible for the congregation before God, as the Bible tells us. And so when they pray over you, this is you entrusting them as leaders. But it doesn't mean that the elders have special powers. The elders are people just like you and me. Anointing with oil doesn't mean that you're, you're putting some sort of special miracle oil on them. That sounds kind of like a, a snake oil salesman, right? But the purpose of oil in the New Testament and the Old Testament was to set something apart. It, and it also means to consecrate, right? That's the word we see a lot in the Old Testament. So when you consecrate or anoint something with oil, it's not really that the oil is healing them. What you're saying is, I am setting this apart I'm saying this is out of my control, and this is now completely in God's hands. I have faith in whatever God is going to do over this. In this case, it's a person who is sick. You're saying, this is no longer under my control. This is completely under God's control, and we trust him with it. That's the prayer that's offered in faith in this situation. And it's also telling us that we have the right to faith in absolutely any situation in life. There's nothing out of bounds in faith that God can do all things. So that's where it's hard when you read this. You can come to this point of saying, you know, I prayed with a lot of faith, 
that I wouldn't have cancer anymore. So you tell yourself, I must not have believed hard enough. And you shame yourself for that. But the reality is, when you trust it completely to God, you trust in whatever happens after that moment. That's the prayer of faith. And we're going to come back to that in a moment as we talk about Elijah. The next one we're going to, we're going to talk about is an important one. Occasion number three, we, prayer, we pray hopefully when we have sinned and we are in need of forgiveness. We read through this that, that if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The power of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, I think this is put in here somewhat on purpose because we just talked about the prayer offered in faith. We're going to talk about the example of Elijah in a moment. But in the middle of that is this realization that we are sinful and we need forgiveness. Now, some, you could say, have sinned more than others, but all people are guilty of sin before God. So we don't contain in ourselves some superhuman power. Only God is powerful. We are all in need of forgiveness. And this is the only verse in the New Testament that talks about the need to confess our sins to one another. And I think that's us as a community collectively saying, we're broken. and We need help. And the point here is that we have to examine and confess the sins in our life. That's part of a prayer offered in faith of saying, God, I'm a part of the problem, and you are the only solution, and I need your help. We're born into this fallen and broken world, and God is our only hope in it. There's no superhumans with superpowers We're all sinners equally in need of God's grace and forgiveness. That's where we pick up in the next part of it. We talk about Elijah. The fourth occasion in which to pray is when you have a desire for the will of God to be done in your life. We've, We've touched on that throughout the book of James. It's all over in the New Testament that our model of prayer is to pray for the will of God to be done above ours. And that our will, our desire, should conform with God's will and his desires. And so you read through this, again, verses 17 and 18, talks about Elijah praying earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So if you don't know the story of Elijah, you could be reading this and be like, well, that sounds like a guy with superpowers. He believed really hard, and he somehow held the rain back from the land for three and a half years, and then he believed really hard, and then it rained again. So that's how I should pray, is just really believe hard and tell God what I want, and if I believe hard enough, he has to give it to me. you got to read the story. This is back in the book of First Kings. Elijah did pray, and there was a drought, and he prayed again, and there was rain. But the detail that's important here is that God told him there would be a drought. And when God revealed his will to Elijah, he prayed for that will to be done. And then God told him again before his sacrifice at Mount Carmel that rains would come. So God told him this would happen, and so he prayed for that to happen. This is how it should be in our lives. If you understand God's will, you need to pray for that will to be done. And basically what you're saying is, God, I understand this. 
help me get out of the way. All I want is for your will to be done in this. And this includes even things like healing. God can and does heal, but God doesn't always heal, and you have to trust him if he doesn't. We see this in the book of 2 Corinthians when Paul was pleading with God to take away this this illness from him. And he said, I pleaded with God three times. And you know what God told Paul? No. No. Because there's a purpose for what you're going through. And my grace is sufficient in your weakness. And you're going through this for a purpose because your weakness highlights your need of me. And in your weakness, you are made complete. So often we make prayer into this activity to try to conform God's wills, will to our desires. But the purpose is to transform our desires according to his will. We pray when we have a desire for the will of God to be done. And that desire should be in all things of life. And the last point is one that we really need to highlight. Because this really explains the whole purpose of why we're here as a church and what we are to do. We're to pray when we have a burden for the lost. And he concludes the book with, if one of you should wander from the truth, someone should bring that person back. And remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, not one of us can save a sinner, but we can point them to the one who can, Jesus, who died on the cross for their sins, who paid the penalty of death so they may live again in him. The greatest privilege and burden of the church should be seeking the lost and praying for them to come to life in Christ. And many churches fall into this routine of being very inside-focused, that over time we can convince ourselves that, you know, we could say that Maple Plain Community Church is a church made by our people, run by our people, for our people. And we get very closed off and focused on ourselves, and we forget the whole purpose of the church, which is to reach the lost, of which we were one of them at one point. The church is a place for the sick, not for the healthy. The battle is not with people, but for people. And there's a startling fact I want to share with you right now. As we consider our church as a part of the bigger church. Okay, we are a very small part of the church of Jesus Christ, of his global movement around the world. But the startling fact is this. He has situated us in Maple Plain, Minnesota. And within a five-mile radius of this church, there are thousands of people without Jesus. That if they died today, they would go to hell. And that's not my words. That's not my understanding. That's the truth of God that's before us, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if they don't have Jesus, they have none of that. And we hold the answers. We've experienced God's truth, and now he's given us a mission to reach them. Here's another fact. Every single one of them has hope in Jesus Christ. 
Not one of them is too far gone. Not one of them has sinned too greatly. Not one of them has a mind in just a wrong spot. They all have hope in Jesus Christ. And here's another fact. God has trusted you with a message that can save them. That's why we exist. It's why we're here, and we should have this burning passion to reach those around us. Because we're not saving them from a bad life. We're not saving them from a bad decision. We're saving them from death. There's times I think about that, and I weep. That there's so many people in need of what matters most, and that's why we're here, is to have a passion for them. We are a church to connect with God, to connect with others, and connect others with God. This is our mission field. And the way we start is by prayer. Pray for those people. Don't give up on them. And know that God has given us many things we can do, but the ultimate work is what God can do. Don't undersell the power of prayer that the Holy Spirit be working in their lives, softening their hearts to accept the truth, and then go. Speak the truth with conviction. We're here to reach the lost. And a beautiful occasion to pray is when we have a burden for the lost around us. When I end today, I just want to end with, with kind of a charge, which is fitting because all of James is kind of a big charge and a lot of challenging things. So know that this whole book of James has been very practical and it should challenge all of us. Maybe the first charge is to understand for you what, what needs to change in your life. What does God need to work on? Is it in obedience? Is it in loving all people? Is it in trusting God through all things? Is it in the way you talk? Is it in your patience or your perseverance or your hope? What is it? There's one thing you could pick through this whole series that that God needs to work on on you. What is it? Be praying for those things. Be working on those things. Next question is, who needs Jesus around you? A neighbor, co-worker, family member, maybe someone inside your own home. This needs to be your focus. Pray that God would give you a burden for them, that he would develop a compassion for the lost in you. And then work on that. And this is going to be a big focus for our church in the future, by the way. We'll be talking a lot about evangelism and reaching people for Jesus in the year to come. So if that's not your thing, this is your fair warning. All right? And encourage one another along the way. Know that you're never, ever, ever alone in this. That this is something we do together. But do it all with God's help. In his timing, in his will, and in his power, all for his glory. Let's pray as we close today. Well, God, we are uh, just humbled to be yours, to be considered your children. And we place faith in you, Jesus, as the Lord of our lives, that you paid the penalty for our sin. 
God, we understand that that brings us to a place of new birth and new life, albeit it, it seems slow at times, but you are doing a good work inside each and every one of us who place our faith in you, that you can transform us and that you can change us, that you can align us more with your will and, and, and your conduct. God, I just pray that you continue that good work as we trust in you. But God, I pray as you've been working in us that we understand that the goal and the mission here is to multiply that to reach out to others and to extend to them that gospel of reconciliation and grace and mercy. we got to pray for anyone here today that has uh, maybe not taken that step, maybe doesn't understand the need for that. God, that you would bring to us all a mindfulness of our sin, that the payment of that sin is severe, that it is death, eternal death and separation from you. And so I pray for anyone who's reconciling that fact that they would now place their faith in you as the one who paid the penalty for that sin, that they would trust in you as Lord, as the master of their life, and that they'd walk in the newness of life with you from this day forward. But God, I pray for us as a church that we not take our eyes off of the mission that you have placed before us. It's not our idea, but it is our burden that you've placed on us to reach those around us, that we may be a light into this community. God, as we will be those who are entrusted with your gospel ambassadors of you, may you just give us the strength and the perseverance in all things. But anyone going through those difficulties, those trials, that they just keep going, patiently trusting in you as they look to the future with great hope and confidence of all you have left to do. And we pray all these things. In your name, Jesus. Amen.